From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. To EWTN's open line, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you'd like to talk to Colin, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Ace McKay is our celebrity call screener today. And Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live... You can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is here every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing very, very good. Um, we were at, you were asking me before the program about uh, this week. I've been up in uh, Coleman, Alabama, for the annual meeting of the Mariological Society of America. I bet most of our listeners don't know that there is such a beast. Not a lot of card-carrying members out there, I wouldn't think. Well, there, there's well over are there, 100. Are there academic requirements to be part of this group? For for certain, for the professional position, yes, there are academic requirements, but there are also associate and uh, uh, membership in religious different categories like that. So that interest in Mariology is what's important. Uh, but it's interesting because you... Uh, to hear other people, you know, on the programs in that, myself and others, EWTN, Father Mitch, and our, our, our friars, of course, talk about the subject of Mary. But the purposes are often, uh, you know, they're exhortatory or something like this. To get something from, a, from the academic perspective, in other words, from the, the discipline of theology, which, as Aquinas noted, is a science, you know, by which you, you, you starting with a set of facts, you draw different conclusions. Uh, now, with God, that's difficult because every other sta- understanding we can have of God is by analogy. So uh, there's some difficulties there, but we have divine revelation and we have the church to, you know, to keep us straight on those things. So we're not at a loss as to having uh, information, the data of revelation, the decisions of the magisterium and so on. So, so theology proceeds forward. But this was an interesting week because it dealt with the, the church has a, a special Marian Missal, which has a number of of uh, masses in which the various propers of the mass, which are like the collect, the opening prayer, the, the, uh, the, the particular readings of the mass, the offertory prayer, introit, po- the post-communion prayer, so on, yeah. So all of these different propers of masses, which we take for granted when we go to mass on Sunday, but in the book, this is what the priest is looking at, and he sees these by their, the, the name of what they are. And so... 
looking at what the church has published, in some cases going back to, you know, earlier in the 20th century, but in this particular collection back to the 1980s. It's a great gift to the church because some of the titles we take for granted when we hear, say, the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you know, uh, Mother of God, of course, is a teaching of one of the great councils of the early church. But Mother of Hope, uh, we had a celebration in the Mass of uh, Our Lady of the Cenacle, or the Mother of, of the Cenacle, referring to the room in which the Last Supper was celebrated, in which also Pentecost occurred. Uh, so that was very touching. It was done in the lower church of the shrine yesterday. We, we had a bit of a tour of the shrine. But I think the interesting thing is when the church talks about sacred tradition, sometimes people are at a loss, you know, you know what that means. Does that mean something that Pope Benedict said five years ago on a Tuesday, or is it something much older than that? Well, for the church, it's something that comes from the teaching of the apostles, some of which is written down, some of which was communicated orally in the preaching and the teaching, and then received by the early church and by the successors of the apostles and handed on and mulled over and contemplated by the church, and things defined such as that Mary is the mother of God because Christ is a divine person, and although with a human nature, nonetheless, the, the he in Christ, the person in Christ, is God. And so she's not the mother of a nature, but of a person and who is God. But the liturgy is very important because the liturgy is a witness to the tradition. And theologians are familiar with the expression lex orande, lex credende, and it's sometimes reversed, lex credende, lex orande. The law of praying is the law of believing, or the law of believing is the law of praying. Because we pray according to our belief. If we have right belief, we pray rightly. If we have wrong belief, we pray wrongly. And likewise, if we pray wrongly, we're going to likely end up affecting our belief. And why the church is very careful, for example, in the words in the Missal. It's not just an irrelevant matter whether a particular word is chosen, because it'll affect understanding of how people uh, change. So an example of this was the, when the Missal changed from one in being to consubstantial, which reflects the theological tradition of uh, that God is of one divine substance, but there are three persons. One in being is not as clear as that, so it was important to restore that use of that term there. But the reason we were studying these uh, different masses in the Marian Missal and different individuals gave uh, presentations on, not all of them, because there's a, a good, no, good number of them, uh, but I would say half dozen or more were mentioned in some context, or maybe as many as ten, is because of this principle. And that is, in the Missal is expressed the belief of the Church. So even though the Church has not, for example, uh, the titles in the, in the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the popes have approved the additions to though. In fact, for the five great litanies, the popes must approve uh, the content of them. In other words, no, you can't add things to them. Uh, Pope Francis added some titles of Joseph. Titles been added to the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary during uh, John Paul's time, and, and I think Benedict may have as well. But the point is that they express something of the faith even though there may not be a dogma about it, they express a fact that it is part of the church of the belief. So the, the liturgy is a very fruitful, almost catechism 
of the faith of the church, what she takes for granted, because none of the texts of the Missal are lightly spoken by the church or approved by the magisterium for (laughs) use by the church. And so you might think here's a dry academic thing, but certainly for me, it was a very beautiful experience of what it uh, what it is to see, you know, behind the door as it is to where where the church really sees Mary. And also it's a clue as to also how in the future we our understanding will deepen down some of these pathways. So it was a very fruitful thing. I know the other members who were there and came from all over the country and in some places from overseas. We had a, a woman from Australia who happens to live in the United States, uh, an English woman. Um, and so people come from all over. One of the priests, uh, Father McCurry, is from, uh, has American citizenship because he happened to be here when he was born, but then his parents moved back to Ireland, so he has both. And you see this in, in the English-speaking world, how these things are, are, are developing. And it's, uh, it was a very wonderful experience. And so uh, I look forward to being able to uh, do it, doing it again in the future. You know, and it's important uh, that, um, you know, while the average rank-and-file Catholic may not invest the intellectual uh, sweat that it takes to really dig deep into these mm-hmm. topics— it's important that they get dug into deeply because those who don't have the capacity, the means, or the time to dig into those still now have the foundation of that intellectual work being done to stand on when they pray. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And, you know, for this reasons, uh, in uh, not just in the Roman Church, but certainly in the Eastern Churches as well, the task of, the the- of theology is to, you know, to study those things which the Church holds and to flesh out the ramifications of this. And when Christ promised to the apostles the Holy Spirit would lead them into all things, Part of that was that although we don't necessarily have, you know, bishops doing this, nonetheless, it is ultimately bishops and even ultimately the Pope will determine which of those uh, investigations and studies are actually fruitful. And in this way, the theological science advances over the generations. And we are where we are today because there is this continual process going on, which Christ initiated by promising the Spirit to his church to understand all things. And we'll get there one day in heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line, Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. And you can get The World Over sent directly to your email inbox every week. All you have to do is go to EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Carol in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on the EWTN app. Carol, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. This is Carol. Um, I just have a, a probably a silly question, but I'm just curious. Um, does a person have to be Catholic to play? Oh my gosh! To pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet? Absolutely not. There, there is no condition attached to praying it. In fact, for any prayer, uh, even to attend Mass with uh, without receiving the Sacrament of Holy Communion, of course, since that is for Catholics, all of these things were God gracious stepping down to us, and they are there for the asking. And so, but we must ask. And certainly his divine mercy, whether given to us in our spiritual needs, in our sinfulness, or in our material needs, he wants us to ask us. It shows us humili- shows him our humility. Uh, it shows him that we trust him and we are dependent upon him. And so uh, absolutely, uh, whether on EWTN or dropping in a, uh, with other, a group of people who might be saying the chaplet, uh, is possible for any anyone. Uh, it would be, might be a little bit difficult for a non-Christian, obviously, because of the presuppositions behind it, uh, and that is that you know Christ is the Redeemer, and through Him God has reached down to the world. But for a Christian, certainly, uh, to pray the chaplet is not restricted uh, to to Catholics. Does that help, Carol? I pray. I pray it every day. Thank you so much. And thank you, too, for praying it. We wish the whole world did, and maybe some of the nonsense going on, and it would come to an end. Amen. God bless you, Carol. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Collins is in the great state of Illinois today, listening at WPNJ Radio. Collins, you're on with Colin Donovan. All right. My question is... Mm -hmm. Is it proper <clears throat> to ask Mary to intercede with me for some other person, for example, maybe a healing? If so, mm-hmm. how, how, is that, how would I go about doing that? Well, uh, it, it certainly is. Um, and you can use your own words. I, the, the Church, in its prayer books, has lots of prayers you know, that you can pray that are directed for Mary to her intercession. Uh, but uh, you can imagine the young couple at Cana didn't, uh, they didn't do much. They just up, go, went up, and maybe somebody, this, maybe the wine steward tugged in her arm and said, hey, they, don't, they need more wine. Now, I don't know what he expected. Maybe he, he'd heard of this preacher and thought, well, maybe he could get something, uh, she could get, uh, get something taken care of about that. And that's what she did. So you can tug at Mary's sleeve uh, in your own words, or you can use a prayer for that. Obviously, throughout history, the most efficacious prayer has been the rosary. Because in the rosary, although we think of it, it's a Marian prayer, certainly because you're saying the Hail Mary, it's Christocentric. In other words, Mary doesn't want us so much to come to her as to her son. And so... In going to her, she is leading us to her son, or we want her to approach her son on our behalf. 
So in the rosary, you can meditate on the mysteries of Christ's life and his interreactions with his, uh, with his mother, obviously, and of course his suffering and death, and then the, 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 the glory that occurred for him and the glory that occurred for Our Lady in her assumption and her, uh, and her uh, coronation. Because she is our forerunner, and she has walked the path that one day at the end of time, when our bodies are raised up at the general resurrection, we too will receive all the fruits of the redemption as she already has. And so she stands as a signpost, if you will, to us, that this is the way to Jesus, and in me you can see the fruits of the redemption that you yourself will one day have. And so use your own words, or if you have a prayer book that is addressed to Our Lady, you can just insert in there somewhere uh, in a prayer, you know, this intention that you have for the other person. God bless you, Collins. Thanks so much for the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Lisa in the great state of Ohio listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lisa, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you both for taking the call. You're welcome. I'm calling on behalf of my seven-year-old son. Okay. Who is wondering, (laughs) he's wondering why in the Mass we say that we dare to say the Our Father. He's Mm -hmm. wondering why we use that verbiage. It's expressing the distance between us and God. Now, two things can be said about that. Us adults, we adults, understand that we're a long way from God. I mean, God is God, the creator of everything, so that he sustains everything constantly in existence. So when we see that distance between us, what our Lord is saying is, because of him, we can dare to approach the Father. Now, the other aspect of that, since he's seven years old, little children don't know anything about that. They love Jesus. They're just going to go right. They're going to say what the, to him what they want to God. And in fact, he, the Lord wants us to have that innocence of children too. But the fact is that objectively, we are so far from God that what a privilege it is to call him Father, Abba, as his divine son with him from all eternity uh, does as well. And that's where the dare is that we are, we mere creatures have this prerogative which is beyond even our comprehension. And even when we get to heaven and we see God, it'll be beyond our comprehension. But Jesus knows because he is God, he knows how far that distance is. Uh, So I think for us adults, that means more than it is for children because he always said, let the little children come unto me. And, and so he wants them to maintain that childlike innocence and just go for it. Go to him. How's that, Lisa? That sounds great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. James is in Florida listening on Guadalupe Radio. James, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, sir. I have a question for Colin. Uh, 
my wife and I were talking about it last night, and and I asked her, I says, I says, this would be a good question for EWTN Radio, is that uh, you know Saint Peter, you know, you know, I believe it's in the Book of Matthew, you know, that Jesus went and healed his mother-in-law. Okay, mm-hmm. and, all right. And my question is this: If he was married, how did he end up being pope? <laughs> Well, we're a long way from the law of celibacy at, at, that, at that point. The, um, that's certainly true. And I've been to the place when you go to Capernaum, there is, uh, there is a ruins of a first century synagogue, which is likely where Jesus would teach. And you can see there the, the chair of Moses. And in, it, in, in one of his addresses, he says that, you know, what the rabbis tell you, do what they tell you, just don't imitate their bad behavior because they had the authority of Moses and they had the seat of Moses. And the same thing, I guess, could be said even of the Christian. You know, the, in, in the church, we have the seats of the apostles, the cathedra of the apostles. And they are there to teach us, and that is their right, and we listen to them and we should obey them in that. Uh, but we don't imitate anybody's bad behavior regardless of their rank or, or anything. Now, the thing here with the, with the mother-in-law is there is their ruins, which they've discovered, I think, in the last 50 to 100 years, which they're pretty certain is the house of St. Peter, and that this is where that miracle occurred. It's just a stone's throw from the synagogue. St. Peter, like all Jewish men, uh, and the rabbis had an expression that a man who wasn't married by the time he was 20 was half a man. There was a great encouragement for Jewish men to marry, because after all, from the sons of one of them, especially of the tribe of Judah and the descendancy of David, would come the Messiah in the future. So for Israel to grow and for the Messiah to come, there was this impetus to marry and have children. And so Peter was. The apostles, if they were of age, probably were. We know John was not. He was just a young man, they suspect a teenager. Uh, but uh, others of them would be. Now, celibacy, Christ himself in Matthew 19, when talking about marriage, brings in celibacy. And he talks about marriage and the permission. This is a case where God set aside the natural law that marriage between a man and a woman is a lifelong thing. That in the uh, ignorance, uh, the Jews did not have the grace because the Messiah had not come. And so they were given the toleration of remarriage after divorce. Not God's design. We see that in Genesis. That was not God's design. But he promulgated the law and he tolerated this. And then when Christ comes, he said that tolerance is over. But he then also goes on to talk about eunuchs for the kingdom. And so, based on that alone, and also from what St. Paul says in Corinthians, we know that he would rather that they remain, a man remain unmarried because he could dedicate himself totally to the Lord. The early church, very early on, developed this idea of giving up this possibility of marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. And certainly the, the, the men who went into the deserts of Judea and later on in Egypt 
uh, did that for that reason. There were the widows who never remarried, who cared for the uh, for individuals, as we know, in the early church. And so this this idea of the perfection of celibacy as a total dedication to God was actually previewed in some of the ancient rabbis, and St. Paul himself practiced it, because they said they were married to Torah, to the Word of God. Well, that's sort of what the priest does who maintains celibacy. It's not a condition of the priesthood, but it's a seeking of perfection uh, of the priesthood as Christ himself lived that priesthood. It's EWTN's Open Line, Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations to another member of the EWTN radio family, KOFR 107.1 FM in Lander, Wyoming, is celebrating their eighth year with us. Congratulations to everyone at the Church of the Holy Rosary in Lander, and your, uh, from your friends, rather, here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, a rarity. Wide open phone lines for you on a Friday at 833-288-3986. Annie writes in, a bunch of ladies told me that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, had children with her, and that there is a gospel of Mary Magdalene. How can I respond to them? (laughs) Well, um, She actually says, is this true? And in the immortal, the claim is true, but the it is not true facts. There you it is go. not true facts. Uh, this this is a long line of conspiracy theorizing. Before there was uh, the conspiracy theorist claim uh, of our, our recent political debates and so on, uh, there was things you know like um, uh, what was the movie. Uh, book and Da Vinci Code Code, and something like that. Illuminati and all that. All all of these, all of these kinds of books. And the claim is that the bloodline of Christ is really the Holy Grail because uh, it winds its way through the kings of Europe or something like this. And that this is the Holy Grail. It's not the, it's not the chalice of uh, supposedly brought to England, which uh, England claims that uh, Joseph of Arimathea came there with it. Um, so that's all conspiracy theory. The reason it's not accepted is because in the early church, those who knew the truth, you know, circular filed it, to use a contemporary expression. There were a lot of apocryphal writings with fantastic stories. Uh, the Evangelium of St. James is one of those, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and others. Um, there are Gospels attributed to other apostles which are not they're not authentic. And they're not authentic because they contradict what those known apostles whose teaching we do have and which the whole Mediterranean world professed uh, in the first centuries, the truths of the Catholic faith, they didn't, they didn't hold that. They were extravagances. And one of the ways you see that you see that is some of the miracles said that Christ are done. You know, our miracles that we do expect are, are um, you know, showing power for power's sake. And this is not, this is not how God, God acts. He used his divine power to demonstrate the truth of who he was, 
and the truth of the teaching that he communicated. And his resurrection was the cap on the miracles of his life of healing and deliverance and and so on. And he didn't do it in an extravagant way. So it's one of the signs of inauthenticity. But in any case, no, no Christian church ever held these. But uh, fantasists get a hold of it and they perpetuate these things. It makes good television stories on certain channels that deal with the fantastic and the unusual, most of which aren't true, who have maybe have UFO stories as well and so on. In any case, they're nothing that any Christians of the early church would recognize as the gospel of Jesus Christ or the person of Jesus Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Frank is in the great state of Ohio listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Frank, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hello, man. Hey, this might be a a silly question. Uh, I'm not a kid, but I've often wondered this. When we pray, uh, which I do every day, Mm -hmm. um, how do our prayers, like we pray to our... uh, Asking the intercession of Mary or the saints or directly sure. to Jesus. How do these? Pray- how does God handle millions of prayers? How- is there any theology on that? Absolutely. He's got this whole giant bank of bank tubes, like the drive-through <laughs> at the bank. Is no, that what it is? No. I thought it was a switchboard with oh, yeah. plug, you know <laughs> the old-fashioned switchboards. No, this is a great question. No, no, it, it, it is. Um, I guess if I were to get into the details, it might get too Thomistic for people and we'd be losing our audience to the couch and falling asleep. But basically, all of this is done in God. The saints have the vision of God. They see God. They receive light in their intellects from God. Their knowledge of him comes in that way. Their knowledge... uh, of of each other uh, is in that way as well. And so our prayers are in a way mediated directly by God in, in the sense that by his, his will, he wishes to share, you know, in the book of Revelation, it shows the saints sitting on thrones. Well, what, are, what are those thrones? What is the what is it that an occupant of a throne does, a prince or a king or a queen? Uh, they command, they have authority. Uh, they perhaps have domains or princedoms or, or whatever that they are in charge of. They can convey to perhaps to higher authority, to the king, uh, things that are outside of their possibility. And so when we say we are sitting on the throne with Christ, what practical implications does that have? And you look at the example of what the church has done through the centuries. We recognize that in human beings who maybe have the experience of being lawyers like Thomas More dealing with persecution, or here in the network, uh, St. Clair is the patroness of television because of a miracle she experienced in her lifetime, seeing the Christmas Mass at a distance as if she was present, you know, and sort of like seeing it on television. We do it technologically. She did it by the grace of God. She, she was given this special privilege. And so we, the saints 
hear our prayers. They also know about what's going on in our lives, our deceased ones who have gone before us. All of this in God, and his capacity is infinite. It has no limits. He doesn't need to build any bigger switchboards as we would at EWTN as we expand our, our electronics that seemingly infinitely we're always adding more things and improving things. He doesn't do that. He has an infinite capacity uh, to do that. And the thing which we don't understand is simply beyond our ability is there is no time in God. In one gasp, grasp eternally, he has seen all of human history and everything that has taken place. So it's not serially like we do, but it's in him, him in. And uh, so it's beyond our comprehension. But God is the, the best explanation we have of that. We can get into the details of what Aquinas says about how uh, intellectual knowledge is passed between the angels and even to our guardian angel and to us. Uh, and those are important theological details. But the bottom line, as in most things in the church, is in God, through God, with God. How's that, Frank? Well, that's helpful. I am wondering if um, if there's a direct, like a, you could direct me to a place, uh, uh, you mentioned it's Thomistic, you know, where, mm-hmm. where Aquinas specifically talks about this, and then I can try and understand it a bit more. I I, th- I think he does. Um, I'm not sure in which the Summa has yeah, three do you, parts. Do you, do you know, I was going to say, do you know which part of the Summa? No, I, I don't know. It's probably into the third part, which deals with things of the Incarnation and things of relationships with that. It'll be partly in, maybe in the first Prayer. part, which is the in, uh, the angels. And we can draw from analogy of the way uh, intellectual knowledge comes from the, from God through the hierarchy of the angels down to man, and our intellect is certainly uh, part of an explanation there, but I don't think that uh, it's developed to that degree. But remember that it's the kind of knowledge we're talking about is, is spiritual or intellectual knowledge, and therefore it's not material knowledge drawn from the senses, which is man's ordinary way of receiving them. So it's an intellectual process, and we make those. That's why prayer done orally and prayer done mentally are have equivalent e- efficacy. People sometimes say, well, I have to pray this out loud. That may be helpful for some people. It's helpful for them to pray out loud. They have difficulty concentrating if they're only saying the words mentally. But to God, uh, it is the same because we're intellectually in our minds. We're presenting this uh, to him with the will to request and, and to do the things we have in our prayer. Thanks, Frank. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Marianne is in California, listening on the EWTN app. Marianne, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for well, taking my call. Yeah, what can we do for you? Okay, when we pray, a glory be to the Father and mm-hmm. to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We say, "World without end, Amen." But the Bible says, "Heaven and earth will disappear, and the new one will be made." Mm-hmm. So why do we say world without end? I say forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> it it comes from the the Latin uh, words. I think they probably go back to the Vulgate translation from ages to ages, 
And so that's maybe hard to capture the meaning there. But remember, Christ said uh, when he left the world, we just celebrated the ascension, that, and lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, what does that mean? That means the, to the, the age in which we exist is the age before the consummation and the renewal of all things. So that age will come to an end, but the world itself will co- not come to an end. The heavens will not come to an end. Uh, just as the body of Christ precedes us in uh, his resurrection, precedes us in that, we will share in that. Indeed, all of creation will share in that. And so at the renewal of the world, there will be, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, but it will be spiritualized. It's not like, let's put this one on the shelf. We're going to get a new one off the shelf over here. What we have, well, you might could use the term be like our bodies resurrected transformed into a spiritual reality a spiritual creation which is both matter and this new heavens and a new earth and that will exist eternally and uh so that is what it's referring to Uh, so world without end means yes the earth by its nature is mortal just as our bodies are mortal and the scientists would tell us, depending on the theory, that if left to itself, the earth would get cold and dark. And in a supernova of our sun, at some point in history, when the, 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 the sun actually gets expands and gets bigger, would be swallowed up in the sun. Or some death like that, if the earth survived in its natural state for billions of more years. But that's not what's going to happen. It will be renewed. It will be transformed. So we never have to worry, not that we're going to be here in four or five billion years anyway to see that event. But we don't have to worry about a natural end of this world because God has plans for this creation he made. Uh, Plans that he had in the beginning as he did for Adam and Eve and for us, which were not realized because of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of the angels whose role was the command and the order in the universe, and some of them fell. So there is disorder in the universe, and everything will be set right at the end. And so that is the world which will never end, even though this age and its temporality and its materiality as it is now will come to an end, but be transformed. If you find yourself up late on a Friday night, you don't have to work on Saturday, check out the wisdom of Father Benedict Groeschel. You can hear it every Saturday morning at 1 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Greg is in the great state of Nebraska listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Greg, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, hi. Can, uh, I'm on the speakerphone. Can you hear me? Or I need sure to can. I hear you just fine. Okay, great. Okay. That was funny, the previous caller, or two callers ago, had almost my question, and you explained nicely how God handles all these prayers intimately, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many prayers. But my question is, we pray to Mary and all the other saints, too, and they've done their part. They lived a good life. They're now in eternal happiness, enjoying their reward. And, they sh- and why are we barraging them and making them work, 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 work? Mary must hear zillions of prayers every second. And, <laughs> you know, if she's, she's up there supposed to be enjoying her reward and we're making her work. How, yeah. how does that explain? Well, it's, 
it it's not the enjoyment that she has. Her enjoyment is, as St. Paul tells us, seeing God face to face, we now see through a mirror darkly. So the beatific vision consists in seeing God, and in seeing God, the will, uh, that intellectual vision of God overflows into the will, and we experience a joy in us according to the degree of our spirit. Everybody of course, who has ever lived has a di- dies in a different degree of charity or grace, if you wish to use that word. And so, uh, the 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 charity of the Blessed Virgin uh, is certainly greater, and it's often argued is greater than the sum of all the saints who have ever lived. Uh, Christ is, of course, God. So that's uh, his. We can't even comprehend uh, the charity that is in his his intellectually in his human soul. But in the case of each one of us, we will have that enjoyment that comes from God. And obviously, I was speaking of the, of the thrones in that. Our sharing in that divinity is a kind, it's a kind of sharing. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are not the son what Christ has by nature, we receive by grace. And our share in that adoption and in divinity to the extent that our nature allows is to participate in what Christ himself does and what he has done for us. And the role of the redemption is ongoing. It hasn't, it, it's been accomplished in eternity before the Father, but it's ongoing because it's just being distributed and this is why Mary's work is not done. And the saints, the great saints today is St. Philip Neri, who was a, a very zealous apostle of the Lord. He crossed some, uh, uh, crossed people in Rome, he, everywhere where he had to, uh, where he had to, where he want, worked and wanted to work zealously. And so that, that desire doesn't end. If you've dedicated your whole life to serving God, serving Christ, and evangelizing others, and seeing that more souls go to heaven, your even your fulfillment in heaven will be far greater even than the fulfillment you could experienced on earth, because think of your possibilities of accomplishment there are beyond understanding to what we can, what we're able to do through our human means, even with the help of of grace and the help of the Spirit and so on in this world. So. There is, there is no sitting back, you know, don't with your pineapple and umbrella drink and on the beach somewhere on some planet and enjoying the view because you've got the greatest view there ever was, it was, is, or will be, and that is the view of God. And in God, all of these things are being seen and accomplished and done. And this gives you a... It gives you an accidental joy because God gives you the essential joy that you will have for eternity. But it's not as if helping others and continuing that work has no value for you or for God because you're able to experience, uh, in uh, again, in a certain way, an additional joy, but not essential to what your happiness already is in all this good that you're able to accomplish. And to see, you're seeing Christ's work accomplished until the end of the world. And even then, I don't know, we'll have a lot to rejoice in still because think of human history. Uh, I guess you could spend eternity 
sort of like a replay. You could see everything in God that has ever happened. Maybe that's what we'll do. I'm not sure, but we can do all the speculating we want and not be right. So, <laughs> Thanks, Greg. We appreciate the call today. Still could squeeze you in if you give us a call right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Sam would like to know, in the back of my Bible, he says, some verses are annotated as originating from capital M period or capital Q period. Who are these people? <laughs> these, these would be referenced to uh, theorized sources. Um, so I, I'm thinking Q is normally uh, considered one of the early sources by biblical scholars. The church doesn't necessarily put its... A stamp of approval on on this, although John Paul II, I think, and others have made allusions to it. But we have to remember whatever by whatever processes the uh, scriptures came together in the Old Testament. There are you know lists of what's in the stores of the royal treasury of the king of Israel. You would think, how on the earth and in heaven would that possibly be useful? But it tells us something about Israel in those days. So for whatever reason things are in the sacred scripture and by whatever path they got there, they are canonical scripture not because they were preordained such, but because of the authority of the church. Augustine even says that, I would not believe the gospels were it not for the authority of the Catholic church. So the church sets out the limits of what Scripture is revealed, and in doing that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are assured that we can get some truth out of that text which is helpful for salvation. And in some cases, we also get historical truth. In other cases, we may get uh, truth delivered in allegorical fashions. Uh, And all of these modes were used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. And so part of understanding what is said is knowing the manner of speech that is being used today. Uh, We use manners of speech ourselves and colloquialisms, and so did other generations. And so the Scripture is giving us the truth God wished communicated, and I suppose to a scholar those kinds of uh, footnotes about where the origin is suspected to be by academics at some institution or academics generally is important to them. But what we know is that the text, the canonical text, is ultimately what's important. Mary is in the great state of Ohio listening on the EWTN app. Mary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, God just asked me to pull my car over in a shady spot and and share with you... um, that I have seen my son uh, before he was born, and and I I feel like I have proof, at least in my heart, that um, life does begin at conception or probably way before that. Um, I also saw two of my grandsons with my son. um, He was born in 1974. I already had a daughter. She was dark-complected, dark eyes, dark hair, looked like my husband, and I was able to tell my husband that we were having a boy, there were no ultrasounds then, that he had high cheekbones, light complexion, strawberry blonde hair, hazel eyes, and freckles. 
And we even named him after someone we saw ahead of us in church uh, that looked like my vision of my son. We named him Matthew. I said, that boy looks like a Matthew. I don't know if that was his name or not. But then I had a, a dream of my first grandson, and I was able to tell my daughter before um, before she had her ultrasound that she was going to have a boy. It was just shortly after she told me she was pregnant. And yeah, Mary, unfortunately, boy, we're right up against the end of the show. Is there a question for Colin there? I just wanted to make a comment that I that God asked me to stop my car and just mention that mm-hmm. I, I feel like I have proof, I have validation or whatever, that uh, life does begin at conception. And it's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm glad that's comforting to you, our our. Our, our our world is not confused, however, because people don't have their individual substantiated proof, but because they don't believe science. Science is quite clear on this point. It begins, uh, it begins at fertilization, at conception. Uh, so uh, I, I'm sure that's a very personally rewarding uh, experience that you had, uh, but I'm not sure that it would convince large numbers of people when they already look the truth that's every embryology textbook that has ever been produced, they look it in the face and they say, balderdash, uh, it's a clump of tissue. Well, they're, they're very intellectually confused if they can't draw a straight line from the biological facts to the fact that every human being was at one time, one cell, an em- zygote, an embryo, a fetus, an unborn child, a born child, a teenager, an adult, and an old person awaiting death. These are just stages of life, and people look at the facts in their face, and they say, I don't want to believe that, and so I won't. But uh, I'm glad that it was a wonderful experience for you, and it sounds like it was. God bless you, Mary. We appreciate that phone call today. Marie and Anne in Michigan and Illinois, I am sorry, but we are flat out of time. Give us a call back uh, on next Friday's Open Line Friday. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our celebrity call screener, Ace McKay, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in, and thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it on Monday. Until we get together then, God bless.